Robots Radio presents... Hey everybody, welcome into the podcast. We are back with another special bonus episode. Bonus episode. Today we are interviewing a guest that I, I cannot wait to get to talk to. We have with us Peggy No Stevens. She is a legend in the bourbon industry. She's the founder of Peggy No Stevens and Associates. She's also the first woman in the world to receive the title of Master Bourbon Taster. She was the global event planner for iconic brands such as Woodford Reserve. In 2019, Peggy was inducted into the Kentucky Bourbon Hall of Fame by the Kentucky Distillers Association, and she was also recently inducted into Whiskey Magazine's Hall of Fame, which makes her, as far as we can tell, the only woman ever inducted into both Whiskey Magazine and the Kentucky Bourbon Halls of Fame. She's the founder of a group called Bourbon Women, which we'll be talking about today. And she's the author of a new book called Which Fork Do I Use With My Bourbon? Setting the Table for Tasting, Food Pairings, Dinners, and Cocktail Parties. And that's due out April 22nd. We are so honored to have Peggy here with us today. How are you doing, Peggy? Well, good morning. I'm doing wonderful. And I think you've already taught me something. I didn't know I was the first woman for both <laughs> so, of the Hall of Fame. Well, I'm I'm glad we could break that news to you. We're off, we're, we're off to a good start already. We are, yes. <laughs> so, Peggy, you know, all all legends in in any industries kind of start off with a simple story of of how they decided to go off on an adventure. And we're just really curious about where where does your story start in the whiskey world? How did you first get introduced to the spirit? We see that you have quite a lineage, uh, and I'm wondering if you could kind of talk to our audience about. How whiskey has impacted your life for, for the entirety of it, if it has? Well, gosh, you know, growing up in Kentucky, um, I have to say it was part of my fabric of, of growing up and having, you know, my parents had parties uh, at their home, whether it be Christmas eggnog with bourbon or, you know, just in general. I remember my mother's highballs uh, and oh, yeah. taking small sips of those, you know, when I was younger and the old Jim Beam decanters that my father proudly put on his bar that he would receive as gifts. So, you know, growing up, uh, bourbon was always around us. And then it really wasn't um, until I really sourced a career in the hotel business that I learned the specifics of, of the product and the category uh, because I was in catering and convention sales. And so with that, we had to know how to pair wine and we had to know all the different brands and categories of products so that we could do the catering portion. Um, so I learned, I, I guess that I consider that kind of my boot camp uh, for learning about entertaining and food and events and all of that. And then I guess three or four years into my, my career as a hotelier, uh, Brown Foreman headhunted me and they were starting a global travel department. And uh, they wanted someone to head up all of the events and promotions and things of that nature that needed execution across the globe. So then I really sunk my teeth into working for Brown Foreman and worked on such iconic brands like Woodford Reserve and Jack Daniels and Southern Comfort and, you know, a whole host of wines uh, that they had in their portfolio at that time. So that's when the training really kicked in. And my time at Woodford, uh, Lincoln Henderson, who is a big icon, in my opinion, of the industry. He was with Old Forrester and Jack Daniels and Brown Foreman forever, uh, probably 30 plus years, and then went on in retirement to start Angels Envy, uh, and which was a huge success. And I was really looking back, just fortunate to have had him train me to become a bourbon master taster. 
So I would say that that was really when I took off on my career. Absolutely. And one of the things that really fascinates me about your career is this move into basically being in charge of of the Woodford Reserve visitor experience. And the more I've heard you talk about, you know, the kind of inception of, of the visitor experiences in some of these Kentucky distilleries, I really want to ask you, for those of us who have gotten into bourbon in the last 10, 15, 20 years, we're used to these really sort of well-executed, well-scripted visitor experiences in distilleries. But I'm wondering if you could kind of talk a little bit about when you first came into the industry, what sort of visitor experiences did you see, if any, and, and how have they morphed over the last couple decades? You know, that's an excellent question. And when we were beginning uh, Woodford Reserve, gosh, it was under construction in like 1994. And I think we opened in October of 96. I have that that date just ingrained in my memory. But prior to that, um, bourbon was actually on a bit of a decline. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the distilleries that I really credit of having a visitor center very early on was Maker's Mark. Uh, in ancient age, which is now Buffalo Trace Sazerac, um, but that was what it was called back then. And there was no Kentucky bourbon trail. Uh, but what was happening is we were starting to see a comeback in bourbon. And I credit that to some of the retro cocktails like the Manhattan and the old fashioned. And so we were trying to bring back bourbon. So with Woodford uh, and Brown Foreman investing, you know, well over $14 million into that facility, you know, others came along and we started to see a real growth and interest in what the consumer experience is. And if you really think about it, uh, it's almost like we, we pollinate geographically. When a visitor from, let's say, Ohio comes to a Kentucky distillery and they experience you know, that culture and lifestyle, they'll go back and tell on average you know, 18 of their friends about the experience and the product and they take home a bottle. So it was this incredible marketing tool Mm -hmm. and a powerful marketing tool to create an experience and get a lifelong ambassador for your brand. Uh, In that time that I was at Woodford, and this is a great story, uh, two women who were actually my competitors, one was at Makers, one was at Jim Beam, but we were all guest services directors. And we were trying to bring more visitors, you know, to our establishment, but we also enjoyed each other and would travel to tourism conferences and drink each other's whiskey and all of these things. So it was really out of, you know, kind of watching ourselves in our career to say, hey, we got to cross market and help each other out. And so we approached the KDA, which is the Kentucky Distillers Association, and said, how about we come up with a bourbon trail? And we put every experience on the bourbon trail so that visitors can map it out and, you know, go and enjoy it. And, you know, fast forward to 2020, you know, there's over, gosh, millions have come uh, now to see the different distilleries. And it's just blossomed in a way that I think even the industry couldn't imagine, you know, in 1990. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing that you guys were able to create this iconic part of Kentucky that like not just on a whiskey level, but as a state, this is something that you guys get to take pride in, that you have this bourbon trail. And I was kind of curious when when you guys started with this, you know, obviously you were thinking collaboratively with one another of how, oh, well, if we get people in state to check out a lot of bourbon distillers, we're all going to benefit. But did you think that it would ever have the global reach that it now does? No, I, I honestly, back in the 90s, 
you know, it was three women trying to build visitor traffic, right? And, uh, you know, the K- Kentucky Distillers Association really brought it to life. Uh, because they were able to bring all the distilleries together, you know, for a common mission. And that is what's so unique, I would say, about our industry is kind of that rising tide raises all ships. So even though we're competitors, we have a camaraderie uh, and a a true goal of making bourbon globally known and the drink of choice. So when you have that type of enthusiasm and 95% of the world's bourbons made in Kentucky, you know, it, it becomes a real machine. Uh, for marketing. And it's it's just been a fabulous experience. And now, um, it, you know, just as a side note, I see our consumer has changed so much since back then as well, because it used to be that our consumers were really interested in just the production. You know, tell me about fermentation, tell me about distillation, and then let me have a taste. So the scripts were pretty straightforward. Now, because my company, Peggy No Stevens and Associates, we specialize in brand destinations and experiences. So, gosh, we've worked on well over 30 uh, distilleries, helping them create their experiences. So now the consumer asks deep questions like, where did the corn come from? Tell me about the yeast strain that you use for your fermentation. Uh, they want to go out into the field and see the corn. And, you know, it's so um, detailed now because the consumer has graduated You know, there's so much access to information. And so I love, I love that our consumer is knowledgeable. They're curious. You know, they want to be part of the brand. And being part of the brand is knowing the story. It's a really great point. And it makes me curious because I think that when I look at the bourbon consumer now, I see that, just like you said, they they want to be involved in the sort of grain to glass exploration of the whole process. But I also what I see is a lot of consumers are gravitating towards anything that they perceive to be a more craft distillery and kind of shying away from things that kind of smack of, you know, big business or or corporations. And and I'm kind of wondering, as someone who now specializes in building out these visitor experiences, how do you take an enterprise which is kind of inherently a commercial thing and kind of inject it with that flair of giving the impression that it's a craft or a grain to glass kind of experience, even when you're working with these bigger companies? Well, the thing that I always keep in mind is that every consumer, in my opinion, kind of has their own portfolio of spirits that they enjoy. I mean, even myself, of course, I have some favorites, but at the same time, I'm an equal opportunity drinker, I like to say. (laughs) And, uh, And I think our consumers are too. So when they come across a new brand, a craft brand, um, you know, let's say like Peerless, and they taste it and they fall in love with it, that's not going to keep them from still enjoying an Elijah Craig or an Old Forester, you know, another time. Um, I think the enthusiasm around the craft industry is definitely the story because a lot of these are family-owned and operated uh, facilities, and it's so hands-on because they are small and they're making unique spirits, and they're trying different things. And I, I really feel what the craft industry has done for us is keep the big boys on their toes on innovation. Yeah. Because these craft folks, some have absolutely zero background in making whiskey, um, and so they attend like Moonshine University to learn about, you know, how to work a still and all of these things. But they have such unique ideas and things that we had never thought of because a lot of times being in the industry – you know, we, we become a little bit of status quo sometimes because if it's not broke, you know, you don't have to fix it. But I do think 
that it has powered the innovation for even the larger distilleries to to stay on cue. And I'm kind of curious, you know, you are a the first female master taster. What is the difference between a master taster versus a master distiller versus a master blender? You know, obviously when you're working with the big boys or with the craft distilleries, you know, you, you have to know your whiskey. And so I'm curious if you can kind of help our listeners understand the differences there. Well, here's what's so interesting about our industry. We're not like the wine folks, you know, that have sommeliers, master sommeliers, you know, and all of these different tests and credentials. And it's very uniform um, how you, you know, graduate in the wine world on your knowledge. You know, the, the bourbon industry is not like that at all, um, nor is really the whiskey industry. But what it is, is each and every distillery decides titles and training and who they deem, you know, sufficient to be the master distiller or to be the master blender or master taster. Uh, but they are very unique roles. So there's not a set definition by any stretch of the imagination. You know, a master distiller, in my opinion, is in charge of the overall innovation and quality, you know, of the spirit that's being created. You know, a true master distiller is very hands-on um, and manages kind of the production area. Uh, and you might have a production manager, you might have a barrel inventory manager and things of that nature. But overall, the buck stops with the master distiller. You know, a master blender is going to take, you know, the different barrels and make sure that they're mingled correctly and, you know, assure the consistency of the product, you know, um, as far as creating it. And then a master taster is also a quality control, if you will, uh, but it can go further than that. They can become ambassadors, you know, for the brand, conduct tastings to consumers. Um, also, in my opinion, you know, one of my big roles was exploring the whole culinary aspect, you know, of, of the spirit and tasting our product and comparing it to what it would pair nicely with. Uh, what it would mingle with well in a cocktail. So a master taster can go all over the place from more science and production to uh, consumer touch. Well, Peggy, I think this is a great segue into talking about your new book, Which Fork Do I Use With My Bourbon? And I really loved the, the foreword of the book was written by Fred Minnick. And I really sympathize with what he wrote in there because he talked about how he went to a whiskey tasting and, and all of his friends went and they were so excited to try the bourbon. And within 20 minutes, you know, they drank all the bourbon and they were just eating Doritos on the couch and it was a dud. And I can really relate to that. And what I love about your book is it's this beautifully formatted. It's almost like a coffee table book. And yet at the same time, it it has such practical advice on everything from table settings to invitations and how to go through your first whiskey tasting and food pairings all the way up to incredibly fancy cocktail parties. And I'm wondering, in your experience as a master taster, I'm sure you've worked with hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of, of complete novices when it comes to tasting whiskey. And I'm wondering, do you have any general advice? Because our audience ranges from people who've been drinking whiskey for 50 years to people who are just trying to get out of drinking, you know, flavored whiskeys into what we would call kind of the real stuff. Do you have any advice for a novice taster on how to become a better evaluator of whiskey? Absolutely. Um, two things. First of all, it's important to stay and have fun. Uh, and, and I really mean that because this is such a sexy industry and it, it's so easy to enjoy it. And when when you start getting uh, to the point that you're making whiskey unapproachable, 
and especially bourbon unapproachable and you're getting too stiff with it, you know, that's when your party's going to be a flop. Okay. Mm. The, the second thing to remember is that to focus on food flavors. And when I teach a seminar, for example, and we're doing a food pairing or we're just doing a straight tasting, I mentally take people to their kitchen because there's so many times that during a seminar that I watch someone nose a whiskey and I say, okay, what are you nosing? You know, what do you, what do you smell? What is the aroma? And they look at me really blank and I'll say, don't be stumped. Just walk to your kitchen and break it down. What's on your spice rack? And all of a sudden they start thinking about cinnamon and clove mm. and, you know, nutmeg. And, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, food memory. Okay. I, that does have a spice note to it. You know, I'll say, what kind of fruit do you have, you know, in your kitchen? And they might say, well, bananas. And I'll say, well, okay, do you get any banana from that? And once you start kind of suggesting that they break it down by spice, sweet, fruit, savory, then all of a sudden they realize, you know what? I'm not so bad at this. You know, I really kind of get it. I get the vanilla. I get the caramel. Um, that oak note and smoky note, you know, because it's all about food memory. And even when you translate that over to cocktails and you think about mixers that you use, those are all food flavors. So truly the connection here, and this is why we wrote the book, my friend Susan Riegler and I, because we wanted people to enjoy it, number one, and the process of it. And then number two, you make it approachable so you could do it in your own home, but continue to learn. So in all the years that I have been doing uh, and being a master taster and tasting whiskey, it's really about memory and experience, almost like muscle memory. And that's why you see so many of the experts have such a wide vocabulary because we get used to the aromas, we get used to the flavors, and we, we just become more descriptive about it because we've had more experience. Yeah, and I'm I'm kind of curious. It, it seems like you've been to one or two cocktail parties in your time. Uh, how <laughs> yeah. how how many you know cocktail parties did it take for you to realize that this book was needed in the world? You know, are there any like specific bad experiences that you had where you were like, man, they needed a book on how to throw a cocktail party? Well, I'll tell you, this book, I started writing probably over 15 years ago. And the reason why I say that is, you know, I, I was formerly an event planner and I would do some seminars sometimes to teach executives on how to entertain in their home uh, because, you know, no one walks out of college with a event planning 101 degree, you know, unless you're in that major of hospitality. Uh, and so it's really just learning and teaching. So 15 years ago or so, you know, I would work with some executives and say, hey, here's how to map your house out. And here's where you should probably put your bar in your home. And, you know, always make sure you have this or that. And then uh, when I started my company, I was determined, and this was over 12 years ago, I, I was determined that I would write kind of a how-to book um, on bringing it into your home. Because I do sincerely believe that bourbon is a lifestyle and a culture. And I wanted to express that being a Kentucky girl on how I entertain in my own home and some of the events that I have conducted and some of the tricks of the trade, if you will, you know, to make it easier for you to do. So I wrote about two or three chapters of this book. It didn't have the title yet. Uh, and then fast forward, you know, my brand destination, speaking engagements kind of got in the way of me, you know, finishing writing. But I have always been a proponent, you know, of food pairings and, you know, entertaining. So 
my very, very good friend, Susan Riegler, who's also a bourbon expert and has written, oh, I don't know, probably eight books on, on bourbon. She and I got together and I said, gosh, I really want to finish this book. And I'd love your expertise alongside of me because we both are reviewers for American Whiskey Magazine. And we have a lot of fun doing tastings together and blind tastings. And so she was like, oh, my gosh, that sounds great. Coincidentally, she was also the former food critic for the Courier Journal newspaper here in Louisville. So she's Mm. a foodie as well as I am. So this was all written, as I like to say, surround sound. Uh, because, you know, we're both foodies, we're both whiskey experts, we're both Kentuckians, you know, and we're both entertainers. So it all kind of came together for us, and we wrote it probably within 12 months. Peggy, can you walk us through, like, if, if you're throwing a party, what do you naturally gravitate towards the most? What part of hosting a, a tasting or food pairings or a cocktail party really sparks joy for you? Definitely the experience hmm. and the hospitality. You know, that to me is my cornerstone. That is probably what I'm known, I'm known for, not only just with bourbon women events, but, you know, in my own home, it's making people feel comfortable in your home and making them feel welcome. You know, have you ever walked into, and I think I even wrote this in the book, you know, a party and the host or hostess is so stressed out and they're running around, they don't even greet you at the door because, you know, they have food in the oven and it's not ready and they haven't put it out yet or the bar's not <laughs> set up. Or, you know, we all have kind of those stories, right? And I am a, a proponent, and I know this probably sounds funny because it should be the food and the bourbon that's most important, but really it's about how you treat your guests yeah. when they come in the door and how comfortable you make them and what you offer them and making sure that they're enjoying themselves. And, you know, that's, that's hospitality in a nutshell, in my opinion. So when I keep that in the forefront of the experience that my guest is going to have, the rest comes along, you know, it's not just about greeting them at the door. It's like, when will I offer them their first cocktail? Will it be a batch cocktail? Am I going to hand make these cocktails one by one? You know, what kind of food, You know, is it a daytime event, an evening, a reception? How heavy does the food need to be? How hungry will they be? So I think of the visitor, I I think of the guest, Mm -hmm. and try to put myself in their shoes, and then the entertaining takes off from there. Well, Peggy, we are timing the release of this episode with International Women's Day here in early March, and I'm so fascinated by the group that you founded called Bourbon Women. The bio that we received about you, it it specifically said that you founded Bourbon Women after seeing a need for women to have a voice, both within the industry and as aficionados. I'm wondering if you could walk our listeners through kind of the inception. What specifically sparked this group and, and how did it get founded? Well, again, you know, being a Kentucky girl, bourbon was always a part of my life, but I wasn't the only one. And I knew so many of my girlfriends um, who enjoyed the product or as I traveled across the nation, I'd be giving uh, a tasting seminar. And this is globally, too. And I would be giving a tasting seminar and it was a wide sea of men in the room and maybe a trickle of women, maybe two or three that would always kind of sit in the back of the room And I would ask for questions at the end of the seminar and, you know, men would, you know, not be shy at all. They'd raise their hand. They'd ask me questions, but then the seminar would be over and that's when the women would come up and they would ask me a question. And so that really struck me way, way back then. And I remember trying to create some marketing opportunities, you know, not only just with Woodford, but other brands to say, Hey, we need to, we need to talk to these women. We need to teach them. We need to have a women's weekend. We need to do something, 
you know, to engage them because I know they are out there and these women are loyal and they love the product. They're just, you know, not so quick to, you know, step up and sit in the front row and learn more. So um, after I left Brown Foreman, uh, I started my own company. And in, I think, year two or three of starting my company, I thought, you know, I still don't see any of the other distilleries or spirit companies marketing to women. So this is a universal issue, you know, and considering women are the other half of the population, you know, we're missing consumers here. We're missing ambassadors for our brand. So I brought together um, a series of focus groups of women and interviewed them and talked to them and we tasted product and we asked them what they liked. And we, the biggest question was, Hey, if we ever put together an organization that really focused on education um, of the product, what would it look like? What would you want? Mm -hmm. And that's how bourbon women formed. Um, we just listened to women and, uh, I never will forget when I put all my research together and, you know, kind of had kind of a framework of what the bourbon women association would become. I went and knocked on Bill Samuel's door because Bill has been a mentor of mine, uh, for so long and always a big proponent for me. Uh, in fact, he introduced me during the bourbon hall of fame, which was quite special as you can imagine. And I sat with Bill and I showed him all of this and I said, Bill, what do you think? Am I crazy? You know, do you, what, do you think this will take off? Do you think, you know, the, the industry will embrace it or just pat us on the head and say, oh, isn't that cute? And Bill looked at me and he goes, Peggy, you're doing a great thing. He said, what the industry needs to do, and he used these words specifically, is start a conversation. Yeah. And I love the way he said that. He didn't say market to women. He said, start a conversation and let's see where it goes. And we started that conversation back in 2011. We were the first female consumer organization uh, for women in bourbon. And now we're in 10 cities, uh, you know, thousands of women across the nation. We do an annual event called the SIP Posium in August, and it's mm. in Louisville, Kentucky. You all should come to it. Men are invited too. We have found that men love our, our, <laughs> our events because they're so deep and educational and fun. Uh, but it mm. gives women a chance to not only, you know, learn about whiskey and the lifestyle, but they network, they meet women from all over the country. I think we have, gosh, we had over 300 women last year, and I think from 26 different states, if you can imagine that. We've planned over 200 events across the nation, and I'm not the only person, and I, I want to make that clear. There's a board of women who are on our association uh, board and they are dynamite and they are the ones that are responsible for all this national success. And I, I commend them for that. Well, Peggy, I can tell you for sure that your campaigning is working. I have so many female friends who would self-describe themselves as a whiskey girl, that that is the main thing that they drink. And I think it's an awesome thing to see. And I'm kind of curious, where do you see bourbon women going in the future as far as celebrating women in bourbon and advocating for it to be a spirit that can be enjoyed by everyone? Well, I do think there's power in numbers. Um, and as we continue to grow, we're very careful on how we grow. You know, like I said, we're in 10 different cities. Uh, we'll very strategically decide, you know, where's, where is next. And so, for example, we just launched not too long ago, Texas. And so I'm flying to Austin, Texas, in March to do a big seminar for them. So we will, you know, keep growing nationally. But I will tell you too, that a lot of people don't know that bourbon women is a 501c6 
And if you don't know what that is, uh, yes, it's a nonprofit, but it allows us to lobby for the industry. Hmm. So there's, this is a two prong effect, you know, bourbon women's a movement. It's not just a drinking club. And we really try to help the industry on legislative issues, hack programs uh, that need taking off and general support of the industry. So it's kind of the business side and the fun side, you know, mixed into one. So I think we'll take on a bigger role. Um, and that's why I say there's power in numbers, because when legislation, legislators here, not just for men, but from women across the nation on certain issues. It's powerful. It's very powerful. Peggy, I'm, in, I'm interested in hearing, do you think that the bourbon industry is kind of a, a good example or a good microcosm of women in the workplace across the U.S.? Or is it is it different than what you would see in other industries? Well, as far as women working in the industry, yeah, in terms of how women are treated in the industry, employability, what you see as kind of like uh, opportunities for growth for women in the industry. Sure. I have to say, um, and I'm very proud to say this, I think Bourbon Women, since its inception, um, has been a catalyst, a catalyst for change. And the reason why I say that is because more women who actually worked in different uh venues of like the financial institutions or banking or uh, lawyers or whatever, they have learned different positions and jobs that are available to them in the industry and have applied for those. And we try to help with that networking and get them connected so they understand how they can become part of the industry and actually work for the industry. Um, internally, uh, with companies and spirit companies, I think there's a phenomenal increase in women in marketing positions, especially since I've been, you know, working for a big company a long time ago. Um, I still think we're missing the mark on C-suite positions. Mm. I think in distributor companies, you know, distribution companies, I think that could probably improve as well. Um, but I do see roles changing. I, I see improvement. I still think we have room uh, for opportunity, but for the most part, you know, we're we're on the good pendulum swing. Well, Peggy, we are just so thankful that you've come onto our podcast and taken the time, but we haven't yet talked about the other half of our podcast, which is films. And I'm kind of curious, do you have a favorite movie and what whiskey would you pair with that movie? Well, that's funny. Can I go way back or does it have to be a modern day? Oh, you no, can please. go <laughs> as far back as you would like. Well, you, you might think this is kind of funny, but, um, I, well, first of all, because I travel so much and everything, I'm a big Netflix person <laughs> so, mm -hmm. because I don't get a chance to always go to the theaters and I have to, you know, wait till it comes on Netflix. But one movie that just was so romantic to me and that I just loved everything about the way it was filmed. I loved the, the actors and actresses. The story, it was such a feel-good, was Shock-A-Lot. Do you remember that with Johnny Depp? It's about Shock-A-Lot. And so a woman, you know, uh, it's kind of a vagabond, actually, and she and her daughter, you know, move to a new uh, area, and they meet Johnny Depp, et cetera, but she opens a chocolate uh, store, kind of a patisserie, if you will. And there's something about the cocoa beans that makes it almost magical when people start to eat her chocolate, et cetera. And the reason why I said, I told you I'm a foodie, right? So just watching the whole process of her making everything and people eating the chocolate. I mean, you're dying for a candy bar when you get out of there. <laughs> you you got to go have dessert when you come out of there. So a lot of it, I noticed, was very dark chocolate and you know dark cocoa beans. So boy, oh boy, would I put a Baker's or a Booker's mm. with that movie as I'm watching it. 
And I strongly suggest that because there is such deep chocolate notes in, in bookers, especially um, and tobacco notes and smoke notes that any type of dark chocolate, marshmallow, nutty, um, any of that would go so fabulous with that. And it's funny because every now and then I still pull that for whatever reason, I still pull that movie off the shelf because it just kind of takes you away. And I think that's what entertainment um, and theater is all about. Don't you? Absolutely. You know, just kind of carry you away into kind of, you know, something that you just don't think about your everyday life. And it was just kind of fun and magical. And it's such a natural pairing with bourbon, too, because I, I mean, I, I think I'm speaking for all of us when I say that the Kentucky bourbon ball is one of the great culinary inventions of all time. I mean, it's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's... <laughs> you know, it's funny because I remember and this is a true story. When I was, you know, opening Woodford Reserve, we knew we wanted to give a bourbon candy out, you know, with a tasting, you know, as a little accent for the visitors. And we went on a mission to taste every single bourbon candy known to man uh, to pick the best one. Hmm. And I think in our first year, we went through like six and a half tons of candy. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was insane. It was insane. So, yeah, I'm a bourbon candy snob for sure. Well, Peggy, we can't thank you enough for joining us on the program today. Your book, Which Fork Do I Use With My Bourbon? is due out on April 22nd. I highly, highly recommend this book. If you're just getting into drinking bourbon, if you want to host some friends for a bourbon tasting, if you're throwing a really fancy get-together and you want to have a cocktail party, this book will walk you through every step of the process, and it has so much heart and wit behind it. It's so easy to, to understand. It's so accessible. So, Peggy, thank you, first of all, for writing this book for all of us that really, really need the help. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. And you know, um, it's right now it's on pre-sale on Amazon and then books will be in the hands of physical hands uh, by the end of April, just in time for Derby. Oh, gosh, I can't wait. Well, Peggy, thank you again for joining us. Everybody, this has been Peggy No Stevens, founder of Bourbon Women. Peggy, thanks again. Thank you. Take care.